0: lo-fi I coming at you with hipsville's AD gregory day our good friend writer director bookseller and the voice behind his ad the fanatical sect of god of subcultures and fervent ramblings of all breed of cinematic pleasures how we doing out there today gregory day i'm doing fantastic man how are you oh uh, i'm most excellent most excellent it is the break now, it's the in between, although it's getting really, really close to that semester starting again. The fall break is so, or not fall break, but winter break is so, so not a break because it's holidays and stuff <laughs> like that. But, uh, doing good, doing good. How are things out in the BT and the big TX? Oh, well, things are pretty
1: good, you know. Uh, weather's well, not too bad, just finally getting a little uh crisp outside, which, uh, of course, I desperately want, but um otherwise, the city's, city's doing fine excellent news excellent news well my friend what top 10 movies do you have for us today yeah yeah i'm very excited to talk about this we're doing a top 10 introduction to american
0: independent cinema and i love this as a first list to start the new year 2023 people are like we're always talking about all kinds of different cinema but what, what's something maybe newish we can get into for this 2023 i'm really interested to see your picks for this one yeah, why don't you yeah. jump right into it and and well real quick tell us Kind of what do you mean when you say American independent cinema?
1: Yes, this could be you know, quite a few things, but, but the main thing that it means is that it's not financed by. By the studio system, uh, so your Warner Brothers, your MGMs, Universals, um, Sony—you know—all these, uh, whether they're traditionally traditional uh, studios or newer studios, these films are all independently financed. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that they're uh, all shoestring budget movies. There's a lot of independent uh, films that can be financed by wealthy producers or by movie stars who want to make try to make their own films. But this is just uh, categorized as films not financed by um, our major studio system
0: you would say outside of hollywood
1: uh, not necessarily outside of hollywood but uh, just not financed by the by the studio so they're not a product that's on the studio's okay. roster it's not slated by the money men who run studios these are for the most gotcha. part would be passion projects by the people who were involved in them um, and they raise the money independently of the studio
0: system all right gotcha gotcha i always like to have a little bit of a clue into the yeah. the thinking of hipsville ad before we get into it and so why don't we get into it what do we got in coming at number 10. yeah number 10 we're going to start in the 80s we'll start with uh jim jarmusch's
1: first feature film called stranger than paradise uh from 1984. this is um a by jim jarmusch as i said it's by the director of ghost dog and dead man and down by law and uh many other great indie films but this is the first film Uh, that he makes out of uh, out of college and it's just about the uh, mundane life of a couple of New Yorkers and they decide to hit the road um, only to find that the rest of America is just as mundane as their existence and so um you know it's a wonderful episodic film it's all shot in black and white and it's a gritty 16 millimeter film um but it's part of the no wave cinema movement of the late 80s where a bunch of uh lower east siders got together decided to make films Um, that were different from the previous generation of 70s filmmakers that were out of Hollywood. Uh, They were really looking for, um, you know, sort of the DIY aesthetic of cinema and and, uh, using non-professional actors in a very small budget. But uh, this film, which if I had to describe, I would say it's probably, you know, the cinematic equivalent of like lo-fi music. It's just humming to the beat of real life. Uh, It's episodic. And so some of those episodes are funny and quippy and some of them are just kind of Um, I would say depressing, but like in a way of like, where there's an aimlessness to life that these young people are just kind of sitting through, uh, like literally sitting through in this movie where they're just kind of sitting around. So um, yeah, this is a great place to start with independent movies, because Jim Darmus is such a staple of independent cinema in this country. Um, If you haven't heard of him, I would go out and seek out many of his films. Uh, A lot of his later films have people like Bill Murray and Tilda Swinton in them, and they're very funny. Um, And so yeah, this is a great place to start with a point for American independent cinema.
0: I liked the the trailer for this a lot, which I had not seen this movie, but at, at first glance, I'm like, I'm eyeballing, it. I'm like, was this movie really 1984? Because it seemed like it was way older than 1984, the way that it mm-hmm. was like shot and everything like that, and the way that the people were talking. And then the, the first, like you said, people just sitting around, you had um, a man and a woman sitting at a table and a guy's eating a TV dinner, explaining to a non-American what a TV dinner is. (laughs) And I mean, it was just a great conversation. And I was like, that's that's so funny. And then it switches to another screen uh, scene where it's another woman from a different country speaking a language and you don't know what language it is. Uh, You could guess, but I'm not going to. And, And there's no subtitles, but she's just like screaming at these these people, these Americans, I'm presuming um and you're thinking like they probably don't understand what she's saying and she's just yelling at them for doing stupid american stuff and then they like <laughs> they drive away and then the the woman turns around and starts walking to the camera and just looks and it's like you son of a bitch and it's it's so funny to me because it's it gives me the impression like this scene with the other scene as well as like the director is kind of zooming in on non-americans views on their observations of american life like is that is that kind of what the movie is or is that just like the feel of this trailer no i would say there's definitely parts of it um i want to say she's ukrainian or
1: uh she's from a different or maybe from different from a different eastern european country but part of the plot is the main character uh his cousin is visiting him and and his family lineage is eastern european and so he's kind of like putting up with her uh but she's also i guess he he just kind of like brushes her off as this uh country bumpkin from eastern europe but she's also very school like cultured and schooled and stuff so there's a little bit of the back and forth of like how americans treat immigrants um as less than or less educated but um you know kind of kind of um setting them up with this idea this person may not speak english but she is just you know just as savvy with her pop culture as the rest of them
0: uh one of my favorite movie quotes of all times is uh I may speak with an accent, but I don't think with an accent. And I, I just think, I think that's like a, a beautiful, simple statement. And and I'm not going to go into the movie that it was from, but it's, it's a way to say to the audience as well, like, no matter where these characters are from and how they speak, just because it may seem foreign to you, doesn't mean that they think in a foreign way. They think the same way. We're all human beings. We all know that one plus one equals two, you know, like... Mm-hmm but it's just be, it's and I think it's a great commentary to be like don't judge me because I have an accent I don't know, it's just what it made me think of anyway anyway um number nine number nine yeah let's we're, go uh, to number nine yeah
1: we're talking about uh old joy uh from 2006 directed by Kelly Reichardt uh Kelly Reichardt's a filmmaker that we've talked about before on this show we talked about Meek's Cutoff or Western and we talked about River of Grass her first indie flick which would uh gone just as well on this list, but um, yeah, so uh, even though we've talked about her before, I wanted to put this film on the list because it's such a simple story, and um, because it's such a simple story, I wanted to put it on here to show uh, the simplicity of indie cinema. Um, And so this film is an examination of masculinity and the ties of friendship, and so it's about these two guys who are childhood friends, and they go on this um, retreat together in the woods, and they haven't spoken in a long time, and there's this unspoken thing that happened between them that they're kind of Talking around the entire film, they're both not mature enough to confront it, and so you're kind of, uh, you know, watching these two men who can't um, communicate with each other uh, just because of how stunted uh, many aspects of masculinity are. Uh, But it also gets into like how does how do how do friendships change over time when when um, people get married and have kids or move apart and like how do you stay connected with each other? Um, And so in in that regard, it's also a really cool um, portrait of American life, but. The reason I want to put on here is because Kelly Reichardt, she only needs two two actors, great locations and, you know, a very meaningful script to pull off a film. And so, um, you know, juxtaposing that against many Hollywood studio pictures with all the money they put into it, you know, they don't always succeed. And so you have a little picture like this and there are, you know, a thousand or maybe a million like it um, that are so great and they show off uh, human quality so well um that they, they prove that in, in an independent setting you don't need all of the flash you know all the um you know bells and whistles of a Hollywood studio movie to make a great pictures so I want to include a Kelly Reichardt film on this list for that reason
0: I think that's that's great and you really you make me think about the cinematography of a film and the the scenes and especially if you're set in what what the trailer it looked like was the the western nature like I got very vibes of like natural virgin forest of like Oregon and Washington and California, Mm -hmm. you know, like, like a big, big forest. Yeah. And to me, like, that's beautiful landscape. You're absolutely right. You don't need a Hollywood budget or a big uh, studio budget to do like CGI or anything like that to create this wonderful landscape. Whenever, if you just put your film in the landscape, I mean, it's already all there for you. And like you said, like two people walking through a forest, that's a great shot in and of itself. I like yeah. it. Um, I am curious though, like how much would a budget like this be for a film? And like, I don't, I don't know outside of like, I know some films go into like, hundreds of millions of dollars for like the big, big blockbusters. And I know Mm -hmm. like, you know, for some smaller production horror films, for instance, I've heard things like, you know, $50 million, or if it's on a really, really cheap budget, maybe $30 million. But like, do you have any idea of what a small budget independent film would cost? Like for something like this, just ballpark figure, do you have any idea? I don't mean to put you on the spot, but it's just actually what I thought about Yeah,
1: yeah. I don't know the exact for this movie, but I would say a movie of this caliber could range anywhere from a hundred thousand dollars to a million dollars um depending on wow
0: that's such a huge difference
1: it is yeah and i think uh this one's probably higher than a hundred thousand i would say it's probably closer to five hundred thousand or even a million just because of uh probably paying for um you know the license to film those locations is probably paying for all of the um you know for everyone to travel to where the location is and as well as to take technology, the cameras um, and all of the stuff it takes to make the movie. Um, but yeah, I mean, an independent film like this could cost as low as 100 grand, uh, or it could be, you know, up to 100, you know, to a million dollars, excuse me.
0: And that's fantastic. Again, like, it's such a contrast of the not that I mean, you said it's not just Hollywood, but like the big studio budget productions is so much millions upon millions of dollars, whereas you, you can come in and make a wonderful looking film, a beautiful film, Mm -hmm. for under a million dollars for a hundred thousand dollars I think that's awesome yeah definitely worthy of inclusion for sure for sure and what do we have coming in at number eight yeah number
1: eight is one of the great counterculture films from American history Uh, and I wish to say a preface that the rest of this list is going to be dealing with counterculture cinema Uh, this is Putney Swope from 1969 directed by the legendary Robert Downey Uh, this is a great satire of uh, corporate culture advertising And of course, the the cultural battle uh, between countercultures and the uh, system. And so, this is the story of um, Putney Swope, who is a low rung employee uh, at a record company. And he's the only Black employee there. And uh, when the top exec dies, everybody on the board decides they're going to vote for Putney instead of each other. So, they're trying to screw each other out of it. They all have the same idea at the same time. And Putney accidentally gets to vote to become the new top exec of this company. And so, he kind of takes over and uses all this power to stick it to the man and um, the white bread society that's uh, in charge of this corporate world. And so he ends up militarizing the entire place and hiring all these different people from uh, disenfranchised corners of the world. And um, it starts to satirize itself in the militarization of um, certain countercultures as well. But um, it's a really funny film. As it's in black and white, but all of the advertising commercials that they put together are in color. Uh, those are hilarious um, because they're seemingly like real ads, but then they have the twist that Putney puts on them and they become um, attacks on, on consumerism and, and the society that is uh, consuming them. Um, but yeah, this is uh, a film directed by Robert Downey, who is the father of Robert Downey Jr., um, who is who did not have the same career that his son did. He was a... Um, indie filmmaker from new york he did a lot of stunts and got arrested and just um would make movies to really push the button uh, of american culture during this, their 60s he was you know um big supporter of the civil rights movement and um, marginalized communities so his films definitely reflect that um and lampoon um you know the president and and just the people in charge of this country and so this is a fantastic example of how to um use
0: independent cinema as a way to attack the norms of society. So I loved this one. And it most certainly gave me the feel of like 60s, 70s funk movement going into it. And, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. whenever I, I heard it was Robert Downey, I was like, really? I was like, cause you know, like the Iron Man, Robert Downey Jr. Like everyone mm-hmm. knows that one, but like yeah. I had never known what his father really did. You oh, know? I <laughs> I, like I had no idea he did Putney Swope. And so I was like, what, really? Um, and in 1969, and I was just like, damn, I was like, this is such a contrast, right, right, uh, yeah. between like, Dr. Doolittle and, <laughs> Let me swoop. like, I yeah. mean, this is, this is intense. And it's still in a very controversial era in US history, right? In 69, oh, yeah, Woodstock yeah. was going on, Vietnam was going on. I mean, Kennedy uh had gotten assassinated, the space race was going on, the cold war was going on. I mean, there was so much. And to have a movie like this to really push the buttons and, and push the envelope, I like it. I dig it a lot. And again, like I said, I'd never uh I'd never know what Robert Downey had done. Is and would you say like this is his big piece that represents all of his work, or is this just like one of them, and he has others that are also similar to this.
1: I mean, he has quite a few pictures that are all kind of similar to this, but I would say this is the one that's the most well-known. I don't know if this movie was at any financial, you know, if it was financially successful when it came out. Um, But over time, it has, you know, become known as his great masterpiece, Uh, even though most of his films are kind of in this, you know, satire, avant-garde kind of indie feel um he spoke just because of of its uh, subject matter and how vicious it is at attacking, you know, so many aspects of American culture at the time, um, and just kind of, you know, the circus quality of, you know, our politics that's represented in the film uh, makes this film so memorable. I dig it. I dig it so
0: much. And. It's really in contrast, in comparison to a couple other movies that Mm -hmm. you have on this list that I, you know, so I'll bring up this one again when we get to those. But what do you got coming in at number seven?
1: Yeah, number seven is Wanda from 1970, directed by Barbara Loden. Uh, This is another film that we've talked about before in this list, but I've, or on the show, but I felt I could not make a list of independent movies without talking about this one. Um, this is the story of a lost housewife as she flees her family obligations and hits the road with this grifter and it's just a like a snapshot of a life uh that shows you know how ostracized women could be in the American society without education or um you know given any any you know not as many rights as men and so this is a it shows like how someone could slip through the cracks and not really have uh, street smarts or the no, you know, capability of living uh, without the support of of people or that could take advantage of you or you know, kind of being in a prison uh, because of your sexuality in this, and it's not your sexuality, your uh, because of your gender, excuse me, um, in this society. And so, um, it's a great picture to come out in the '70s, you know, right at the height of uh, one of the stages of the feminist movement, and so. It's just a great picture to have on here, but I wanted to talk about the director, Barbara Loden, who wrote it, directed it, and starred in it, um, and this is uh, very similar to another movie that's on this list, but it's about, you know, it, it comes from uh, an artist who had to wait for Hollywood to catch up with them. They were dissatisfied with the way Hollywood's studio system operates and the way that um, the pictures they make and just so... This is a person who took it into their, own, into their own hands, raised the money, went out and wrote and directed a film that they felt reflected the American society they live in, uh, not necessarily the American society that Hollywood um, illustrates on screen. And so um, I think this is a really important picture
0: to include in this list. I love this one, and I recognized it right away from your list on top 10 films by female directors. And I remember we had a conversation in that that episode about how many women are there that wrote directed and starred in their own mm-hmm. picture and there was only a handful like there there weren't too too many i mean yeah. we we did get to like maybe 20 and then we stopped but if you think about it like in comparison to the other side to films that were written directed and starred in by men like yeah. it's a much shorter list and so mm-hmm. i think it's awesome that you see this movie from that list also should be top american independent cinema and i we I didn't know it from our last conversation. Maybe we didn't talk about it, but you said that that Barbara Loden raised the money herself, and I think that is pretty phenomenal. Um, and in 1970 it was probably extremely difficult for a woman to do in 1970 to raise the money for a film that she was she wrote that she was going to direct and she was going to star. Um, I mean, what do what do you think? I mean, granted, inflation or deflation going backwards 52 years. Do you have any concept of like? what a movie would have cost back then i know that's a hard question right that's a that's a get in a delorean time capsule and go see huh (laughs) yeah i don't know i mean i guess this this
1: movie could have cost 10 grand maybe 50 grand um based on You know deflating the dollar uh to that time period i guess uh probably around there because it's really it's on a small budget there are no actors really in the or name actors in the film other than herself and one other person um everyone else is sort of like non-actors or you know um not movie star uh, caliber actors and it's all shot in 16 millimeter handheld camera and uh it's just done with a really small crew um She was married to um, Eli Kazan. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with who that is, but he directed On the Waterfront and Streetcar Named Desire and a lot of those kind of big big 50s films. Uh, And so he was very involved in the acting community in New York. Um, And so he kind of brought that actor centric uh, focus to his films and later in his career, they were he and Barbara were married. And so um, I could see that in some way she was able to, because of the community she was from, uh, not because she was married to him, but the community she was from, that acting, that strong acting community and kind of being in some Hollywood pictures, um, that she maybe didn't have the hardest time getting this movie uh, financed. Uh, but it probably took, I would say, a lot of people participating to finance it. Um but yeah, it's just a uh, for, for a passion project like this at that time, um, which I don't even think was was well seen at the time. I think it's more something that's um, kind of earned its reputation over time, but probably didn't cost too much money.
0: That's that's awesome. I, th- I think you're probably right that because she was from the community of actors, directors and everyone that she she was from that probably did help her. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool, and, and sorry to put you on the spot there. Saying to no, deflate no. fifty-two years yeah. of American <laughs> values of money. Yeah, yeah. But well, let's kick it into number six, which also seemed kind of familiar to me. Where are we going now? Yeah, number six is Multiple Maniacs from
1: 1970 by John Waters. I know we've talked about a few of his films, uh, excuse me, uh, on the show, but I can't remember if we've actually talked about this one. But uh, we we have
0: not. But okay. I think. <laughs> does the star end up in other movies as well
1: yeah so john many of john wanted's early pictures maybe even his first six or seven i can't remember off the top of my head all star divine that's um, the one as yep. the as the lead of the picture even hairspray Divine's any uh divine played the mother of the ricky lake character mm-hmm. um but uh this is his first major feature he made a film before this called Mondo Trash-O, which was Feature length, but it's not exactly that feature. And so, this is the first time we really get like a true Blue John Waters movie. It's a complete assault on all things decent in society, as well as um, everything about hippie culture. Just kind of going up, going after everything. And so, um, this is a film that really pushes the envelope on um, just what you can and cannot put in a movie. It's got a uh, circus performer that has a talking asshole. Uh, that shows it on screen <laughs> in the movie. Uh, there's a sex scene shot in a real church um, that's uh, between Divine and a woman in that scene, and then of course there's a giant lobster that rapes Divine uh, later on in the movie. Um, but this is just like coming after everything, like the decency of, of uh, regular society, and the, you know the the post um, or even really like going back to the Camelot era of American uh, society and 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 sort of. Um, not only satir- satirizing that but the you know the enemy in that culture war was the the drug drop- the dropouts and the hippies and the drug culture at that time and so waters is also um satirizing them as the main characters in his film and um so he's just kind of going after everybody and um uh, in a way you know waters always considered himself to feel more like a proto punk than a hippie in his early films I mean this is 1970s this is before the punk movie really took off but uh he was just really fed up with hippies and the squares and so he just you know wanted to tear them all down so um but this is a great uh indie film i mean uh, john waters dad paid for a lot of his early films and he had to pay him back with the grosses from the movies um, but this is a movie that takes a lot of influence from the drive-in movies um and it's first one of the first real films to kind of take influence from genre cinema and kind of do something new with it and so it's kind of making this art film out of its influences um And so, yeah, I want to put that on here because this is uh, like a a turning point for American cinema that there is starting to be this meta sort of interaction um, as well as the satirization of normal society.
0: I don't believe this movie could be made today. (laughs) Like, like, (laughs) I I mean, perhaps it could be, and we'll talk about that later. I don't want to really go into it just just Mm -hmm. yet but, um, or at least I don't want to get your take on it just yet. But to me, when I watched this trailer, and I, re- I did remember Divine from the other movie, I forget which one we had in the other list, but I was like, this looks even more obscene than the last <laughs> one. And that's saying something. I mean, for listeners out there, obscene from what Gregory Day just talked to you about, just a few instances from the movie, the trailer just adds to that. Um, and I was just like, damn, in 1970, so again, 52 years ago, like we were we were pushing the envelope of what you can put into a film. And yeah. I'm kind of curious. Again, I don't want to get into it just yet, but it, <laughs> I, I am going to say like hmm. this makes me think like this is American independent cinema 52 years ago. Where is American independent cinema today In contrast to this grimy in your face, kind of like you said, a talking asshole on on in a movie, you know, like. Fifty-two years ago, they were doing that. What is it today? Again, don't answer it just yet. But I'm saying that's that's sure. what I'm starting to think now. Yeah. Okay. Um, from this list, but why don't you take us into number five? Because if if John Waters is a director I know, then this next director is definitely someone I know as well.
1: Yeah. Number five, we're taking uh, an even uh, a deeper dive into the weirdness of American indie cinema. It's Eraserhead, okay. from 1977, directed by David Lynch. Um, I think we've talked about this film before, but... We um, have. It took me a second, but... (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, but I had to include this on here, because this is one of the all-time great midnight movies uh, that come out of American culture. um, That's no hyperbole. This is like a huge deal or huge landmark for... uh weird movies and you know it was it's a movie like rocky horror that a lot of people have gone to over the years to see in the cinema um at midnight uh because who the hell's gonna go see this movie at 12 o'clock in the afternoon um <laughs> but yeah it's this it's this really weird movie about this guy named henry who's this young man who lives in this oppressively industrialized city and uh he and his girlfriend have uh, some kind of weird mutant child and that um sends him into this bizarre dreamlike not even dreamlike. It's just bizarre nightmare of an existence for the for the majority of the film. And so, um this is a testament to making your movie, no matter how long it takes you to do it. it took David Lynch five years while he was in college, uh, or his entire time in college, and then I think maybe a year after that to make this movie piecemeal. Um, and it's a complete work of art. It's a nightmare horror fifty surrealist kind of movie where it's just got all these different influences. Um, But on a level of art, it's like about industrialization and fear of fatherhood, and just uh, how weird, you know, American society can be. This, this how you know someone you know for making a movie in the the late '70s. This is a person who grew up through the Eisenhower Eisenhower era and you know lived through World War II and just seeing like um, a society that puts on this uh, you know that presents itself as one thing, but does not in in does not um, talk about the the dirtier, nastier parts of society, you know, of that time period, you know, in the 50s where everything was kind of glossed over, that there's a perfect society and there wasn't all these other issues going on. And so this is definitely like many of David Lynch's films where there you could see that they're by singular individuals' thoughts and in mind um and creates these strange, beautiful worlds. But uh, um as far as an independent movie goes, yeah, he had to he had to put together the money and shoot on the weekends when he when he had uh, the funds to do it or he had to wait until you can get a couple more dollars together and go shoot another scene and um, thankfully he had facilities at this at the college he was able to use um, and ultimately was able to put this whole film together and get it released um, but yeah this is a testament to no matter how long it takes you to do something if you truly believe in it you should go you know go all in on it
0: that's amazing and it makes me think too are there continuity issues in the actual film because it took five years to film like you know people age right and people mm-hmm. our bodies change and so like is there are there noticeable differences throughout different scenes to where you could be like ah this was filmed early on in the process or this was filmed later on in the process or do you, do you know if there are any issues like that or can you tell no i don't all? think you, can, or you it can't feel really, like-
1: yeah now you can't really tell because there's so few people in the movie and to a point, okay. most of the film is just the one actor and a lot of other, you know, practical effects or you know sets and things in the film. Um, but if you've seen what Henry and Eraserhead looks like, he's the head on the the poster and he's in the entire film. I mean, he's in the entire trailer. Uh, that guy, the actor, had to wear the the hair the hair uh, haircut for the duration of the filming. <laughs> so he has this obscene horrible. haircuts <laughs> for years um until his head looked like an eraser yes (laughs) yeah 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 yeah. uh but yeah yeah, i mean there's not a lot of it's not really a film where you would notice continuity issues i guess they would seemingly maybe wrap up the scene so they weren't shooting one angle on a scene and then having to come back months later to shoot the other half of it um it seems like maybe they were doing each set piece because it it is a film that kind of works that way where it's just you know one set piece after another that are easily put together and so i'm thinking they probably shot it that way
0: Gotcha, gotcha. Although that does make me think, wasn't there a movie not long ago that came out? I say not long ago, I mean, past few years, like, it was centered around the, like, it was filmed over 20 years or something like that, following one boy as he grew up as the main character. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you know what I'm talking about? Boyhood, boyhood. that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, It kind of makes me think of that. I haven't seen Boyhood, have you? I have not, no. No, I, I think it's an interesting premise though, but to take 20 years to film because you're going to yeah. actually like use the same character and yeah. watch them grow over time, it's interesting. Yeah.
1: Um, Probably going to lose my Austin creds but saying like I haven't seen Boyhood. Yeah, but it's okay.
0: <laughs> oh, that's oh, that also makes me think. Yeah. Did you hear about um, the John Malkovich movie that they filmed for an alcohol company that's not going to be released until 100 years from now?
1: <laughs> no, no, I've not heard that.
0: I love- look into it and, and all yeah. listeners look into it so john malkovich that actor was paid by some alcohol company or a scotch or a whiskey company i forget which one but to make a movie and there's some other like high name uh, international actors and actresses that are in the film as well and they made a movie and then it was put in a time capsule for a hundred years and like it was just done within the past few years so none of us are going to get to see it um goodness knows what they did who cares Mm. (laughs) anyway to number four we go what do we have now i'm looking at number four and i'm like wow here we go here we go here we go here we go yeah Uh, number four is killer
1: of sheep from 1978 by the great charles burnett uh this is again one of the great counterculture uh pictures of american history it's uh but so much more than that it's it's really a snapshot of late 70s life in the LA Watts neighborhoods um, and the life of these African American uh, families that live there. Um, but it is a uh, narrative feature film uh, mixed with a lot of um, street photography. So it's not a documentary about a family, um, but it's it wonderfully mixes those things together. You're watching this very um, honest and tender and um, you know, realistic depiction of this family and their struggles, their financial struggles, the struggles between the parents and the, and the kids, and then like the struggle for the, you know, everyday life, um, that kind of wears and tears in this family, but it's also got this, these, these great, um, sweeping passages of just recording the kids playing in the streets and, and, uh, just living basically just, and, you know, he just, the sense that, uh, Charles Burnett got in a car with a camera and just drove around and, and just recorded all this great footage. Um, it's a real snapshot of uh, its time and place. Um, this is an any film that was uh, mostly funded through grants. And Charles Burnett, you know, took took advantage of the money that was available to him and went out and made this great document, you know, of people who aren't necessarily ever shown in, in a movie um, that would be produced in America. And so this is, uh, this is one of those great uh, pieces of art that have come out of this country.
0: I thought this was spectacular and now that I'm going to take this film and juxtapose it to, um, oh, what was the name of the other one we just said, uh, Putney swoop. Okay. Mm -hmm. So like whenever I started the trailer for this one, killer of sheep, you know, and you automatically you're like, okay, this is a film in the seventies. Got it. But it's like, this isn't part of black exploitation, Hollywood. This isn't part of like, you know, um, Shaft or or Putney Swoop would even give you mm. that like kind of vibe of just like depicting African-Americans in a very particular way in a Hollywood movie. But this one just showed a family and life and a neighborhood. And is just like, like you said, it's something we would never normally see in a Hollywood movie, in a film or in a, a big budget film rather. And I thought it was spectacular to, because at a day and age and in a, You know, black exploitation film in the 70s, and we've talked about it in the show, it was huge, it -hmm. was huge. And for this film to come out against it and just show life that isn't normally portrayed, I thought it was fantastic. Uh, Yeah, I I don't know what else to say other than that. I mean, (laughs) really, it's just like you said, a great Mm -hmm. piece of American art.
1: It really is. I would say that um, if you've, if you or anyone listening is familiar with like the Italian neorealist films of the post-war, uh, World War Two, like where those films that captured all the the poverty and the street life and the 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 um, the plight of the individuals living in Italy at that time, this is very akin to that, but in American society.
0: That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Now, our next one, number three, was the Air. This was certainly your next one, a number three. I, I was not surprised <laughs> at all when it came yeah. up the list. Where are you taking us?
1: Yeah, uh, number three is *Night of the Living Dead* from 1968 by George A. Romero. Uh, I mean, this is one of the most important movies in the history of of cinema or or in American cinema, but. Um, i had to put one horror movie on here not because of course of my, you did <laughs> well not because of my personal taste even though i am a huge fan of this film but horror itself is a very bankable genre and so there is a uh long-standing tradition of independent movies and horror films um and i think uh later on i'm going to bring another one up uh, to illustrate this for you but um if you were an independent financer and you wanted to make money to get into, say you wanted to release a film, especially during this time when the drive-in was very popular, because uh, that's where a lot of these movies played, um, you would try to finance a horror film because you knew that you could probably, at least for the first two weeks at a minimum, um, get a lot of people to come see it, if you had a good trailer at least, or a good poster. Um, because. There, it's a very popular genre, and so that's what these guys did. Romero, who was a he was uh, making industrial uh, television commercials and films, um, or he's making television commercials and films for industrial companies, um, took his knowledge of how to make uh, those products and got it independently financed, uh, and set out to make this movie set in a little cabin with a bunch of monsters attacking it. And um, while he does this, he ends up coming up with this uh, great story that kind of reflects the civil rights movement and the Vietnam War at the time, and it comes out right at the cusp of where the country is facing a lot of moral ambiguity, and it becomes this hit, and it kind of changes um, in the course of this genre's uh, stakes in the world, because before this, there may maybe a couple uh, films that may be considered more than just genre trash, but then we start seeing films like this, or um, Rosemary's Baby, and some other films that start to you know, crossover into mainstream um, audiences. And so this is a great example of just a couple people getting together with a little bit of money, and they create a masterpiece that kind of changes everything. So uh, talking about American cinema or independent cinema without Nine Living Dead would, um, you know, it, it the list wouldn't be complete without it.
0: I kind of think you're right. I do. I do. Um, but is this is this where, is this the one we've talked about Romero and several other lists, but I mm-hmm. think other works of his, but is this his first one? Is this where the, all the the zombie movie mania really starts? Oh yeah, there was not, there were
1: zombie films before this, but most of those films, um, or all of those films, which I should say, are all dealt with the uh, voodoo aspect of zombies. And most of those films had one single zombie in them and dealt with, um, or, or produced by studios that maybe were raising anxieties about um, you know, desegregation and all these things and kind of um, had, a very, had, had a lot of focus on the voodoo religious aspect of it. This is the first zombie film where there's a horde of zombies and there's the ambiguity about where they come from and they're eating people and you have the dynamic of the people locked inside one location. Um, so it all really like zombies we know today um, all start with this movie.
0: That's, that's, that's what I thought. Mm-hmm. And so this movie, like it's 50 years old, is that right? Is my math right? 2023, mm-hmm. 1968, 50 years old. This film starts the zombie movement in the U.S. at least. And that is still going today. Like, mm-hmm. like this month, I forget on which a channel streaming station. I wouldn't plug him even if I did remember, but like The Last <laughs> of Us is coming out, which is a video game turned movie about zombies. Yeah. And it's like a huge deal. The production going into that is massive. The amounts of money going into it is massive. And it's one of the major major producers of films and TV shows and streaming that exists today in the entire world. And it all started 50 years ago with Romero. Yeah. Um, and what looked like a pretty basic small budget film. I mean, like the zombies in this trailer looked like very practical makeup, not even mask, really. Do you know if it was like mask or makeup or like how did they do it? Do you know? I mean, everything in this film is is
1: practical. Obviously, it's from the 60s, but uh, no masks. Everything was done with makeup. Uh, they ate um, I think leftover barbecue with chocolate syrup on them to, to, (laughs) to, uh, cause it's in black and white. So you can get, you can kind of cheat your way through some of those things, but like, just the idea of like, um, a film coming out in 68 and you see, you see these monsters eating people's arms and their intestines and things. And it's just really graphic, even though it's a black and white, um, yeah, they just went all out and they did what they had, they did what they could on a, such a small budget and they, but they did it they did it uh very uh smartly and it scared the hell out of everybody. And look where we are now. I mean, over 50 years later, and we have um a film that's just from the you know, from then all the way to The Walking Dead, like you said, The Last of Us, everything comes from this single
0: movie. Yeah, I think because of that alone, it's it's most certainly worth uh including in your list. All right, well, take us into number two. Where are we going?
1: Yeah, number two is one of, if not the greatest counterculture movie ever made in American history. It's Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song from 1971, uh, directed by Melvin Van Peebles. Uh, this is a film that's got its uh, one foot in the exploitation world and then one foot in the avant-garde or art, art cinema world, uh, because it is kind of in communication with... The, those studio movies but it's also really aiming to do much more than that um it's a story of sweet sweetback who's um a guy who works in a brothel who's named who's uh nickname is sweet sweetback because of his sexual prowess uh but he's framed for a murder and he goes on the run and as a fugitive he you know is becomes a symbol where he's standing up against the white society and the man the police everyone who's after him um who has condemned him uh because he's black basically and so his the symbol that he is, you know, starts to um, cause uprising in black neighborhoods, and so as that happens in the film, then the police become even more oppressive, and so it's this film about, you know, what would happen if racial tensions really started to mount, uh, which of course they were really high at this time, uh, coming out of the late '60s, um, and so this is the perfect film that just encapsulates all of that. Uh, but it does have this action fast-pacedness to it that kind of um, lends from the black exploitation. Uh, side of things uh it's got some it's got some pretty graphic violence and some pretty frank sexual uh sex scenes in the film and so it was um rated x when it was released and so yeah uh, Pe- man the yeah. 70s yes so Ivan Peebles, um being the smart uh person that he you know director that he was uh you know came up with the slogan rated x by an all-white jury to slap on his film and oh
0: that is you so know such smart.
1: a <laughs> yeah and so it's just it's just the perfect uh you know, indie film where it's just it's attacking all the right uh, you know all the right uh people who are who are notorious for oppressing the black society, you know, reshaping uh cinema, and then it's got you know it's got a great soundtrack and it's got this uh overall message that's uh this is a dangerous film that white people don't want you to see. So um Melbourne Van Peoples just uh I think not regarded as highly as he should be um, in a, in the history of American cinema, but this one is, um, you know, a really great film.
0: No, well, I love this because, I mean, at this point, so we're in number two in the list, we've looked at eight other films already, and to see this film come out, and I think you said it right, and the trailer definitely shows it, that this... This foot—I mean, this film has like a foot in black exploitation Hollywood, as well as like Killer of the Sheep, kind of like in 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 both ways, pushing against the envelope, but in in a unique fashion. And then I look at the date as well, nineteen seventy-one. I mean, this is just three years after Romero, you know, doing the really big zombie one. Um, this is just a few years before Killer of Sheep. This is just a few years before A Racer Head. This is one year after Multiple Maniacs, like Uh, in in wanda came out just the year before so like all of these different views about what american cinema was all happening at the exact same time it just makes me think like american independent cinema isn't just one thing it's a lot of different things happening at the same time Mm -hmm. um and that's one thing i loved about this one like it helps show the diversity of of what independent cinema really is and how it can attack so many different issues um, all at once that you wouldn't necessarily see in a larger budget film. Because, I mean, let's be honest, if you have a large budget film, you are expecting a large return, right? Correct. Like, like you, you make a film, I mean, generally speaking, you make a film to make money. Uh, even if you do it for artistic purposes, you still hope to make a profit. Mm-hmm. And if you invest a ton of money in it, then you expect to get a ton of money in return, which means you're gonna stay away from alienating your audiences, right? So by default, you're gonna limit the amount of things that you talk about. And that's like, that's one reason why I think like, Sweet Sweetback's badass song, I think that's awesome. You get to talk about so much more. Um, and plus what a killer name, I mean, yeah. <laughs> like like really, a killer, killer name. Yeah. And, and it makes you wonder, like, what does that even mean? But then <laughs> your explanation, I was like, okay, I get it. I get it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh
1: yeah. I mean, making making film studio films to one degree, you know, you can't make they want to make movies that every possible person can watch. So they're really limiting their ideas. Um, and so yeah, you know, that's what I love about independent cinema, is just these people going out there with visions and making them um at all costs. And so especially looking at films like this from a counterculture point of view or someone like Melvin Van Peebles who really had something to say about the situation in his neighborhoods and the way he was seeing that police are treating uh, individuals and the way that Black people are represented in cinema. Uh, I mean, this is just about as good as independent cinema gets. I dig it. I dig it
0: so much, man. All right, well, take us into your number one, the top American independent cinema film to you, Gregory. Yeah. Hey, what you got? Yeah, so number one is Shadows
1: from 1958, uh, directed by John Cassavetes. Um, This is a film very similar to Wanda, which is the product of someone working in the Hollywood system who is just fed up with how ridiculous Hollywood movies are that, you know, from the point of view of someone saying, this is not how people act, this is not how people in, interact with their environment. This is not the world that we live in that you're representing on these screens. And so um, John Cassavetes, like Barbara Loden, was a very talented actor, but was uh, feeling very um, held back by the types of projects that they could get um, cast in. And so Cassavetes decided he was going to make his own movie, And so, but he did like the first version of Kickstarter because he was on the radio and he was putting ads in newspapers. like, being very vocal about how much he disliked the studio system and if you were to give him some money if he could help raise money he could show you what an american movie could really do and it worked people started donating money to him i'm sure he got some other money independently uh given to him by other producers and things but he set out to make this little movie in new york city uh it's about three uh siblings these three black siblings uh two of them are light-skinned and the eldest one is dark skin um but the movie centers around lila who is uh the sister of this in, in this in the trio of characters here who's dating a white guy she meets at a party and they're having a great time together uh getting to know each other um and then one day he goes to her house and meets her, her older brother who is black uh who is dark skin excuse me and that does not sit well with him that he when he finds out that his girlfriend is black and so kind of tears apart this relationship and then you start to see how this is all affecting the siblings altogether. And um, it's a real honest portrait of how people interact with each other and how racial barriers uh, keep people divided. And so uh, these are things that a movie from 1950 in Hollywood would, would not talk about or they would do it in subtext. But John Castavetti just wanted to put it right in the middle of his film. Um, but outside the the story, I mean, it's shot on New York City streets. It's shot uh, guerrilla. Uh, style with a 60 millimeter camera you could see all the people in the street have no idea what's going on these scenes are happening um he doesn't have licenses for them um it's shot in, shot these, in. Uh, these house parties and in jazz clubs and just kind of really catching the environment um it doesn't have any of the stagey qualities of a, of a of a hollywood film of this time and so um this is you know a true blue work of art where you know someone who was just sitting around in hollywood uh really hating their existence uh feeling that like their talents are being wasted feel like the the propaganda of the studio system is just ridiculous and so um this is a work of art. uh you know probably the work of art that kick-started um the american independent cinema movement that's lasted up until today uh there were independent fi- independently financed films before this but this is like looking at um uh, you know, taking a couple a couple hundred thousand dollars and going to the streets and just making uh, a picture with non traditional actors and and um, yeah, you can see this film reflecting all the way down to today. So it's such a such a monumental work of art.
0: And it really made me think of French New Wave film. Mm-hmm. Like I I really definitely got that vibe from it as well. And and it started. And approximately around the same time, maybe French New Wave was really getting kicking in the in the sixties, but probably had its starts early on in the fifties as well. And I'd heard of this yeah. director before. I'd never heard of this film before, but I love what the movie is tackling because I mean, in 1958, this is just four years after Brown v. Board of Education, which is desegregation of schools and of life. But four years later, America was not desegregated yet not at all. Mm -hmm. But of course, Hollywood wouldn't want to talk about that, you know. And then this is still before 1960s, the Voting Rights Act. So the civil rights movement was still very much going on. And and it's in its height right now. So to to take this 1958 approach of looking at life in New York outside of what's portrayed in a movie and to show the world like, look, America is in the middle of some shit right now. And this is what it looks like. I think that's fantastic. And I think it's definitely a huge variation of coming from a lot of other films that we've talked about in the early 50s or the 40s, or that just showed the grandness of American life in Hollywood studio system. I like it, it's a great pick, man. And that is Gregory Day's top 10 list of American independent cinema films. But we always got some questions for you. And our first one's always the same one. Why'd you wanna do this list? Why, I mean, this is, The first list of 2023 why this one
1: yeah I felt like uh, I finally wanted to do a list where I could not bring up a Hong Kong movie Um, but but no in in all seriousness (laughs) I wanted to talk about about, uh, you know we I think right now we're living in such an abysmal time for movies uh, because there's just uh, so many movies put out by studios that are just flooding the market and kind of pushing out everybody uh to the margins who are trying to make smaller movies uh and traditionally smaller movies are about you know the more uh direct you know they're more about uh they're more direct about approaching life and like the realistic things that people have to have to deal with or or um fight against or experience in life um so we're not all superpowered individuals who will overcome things you know who, who no doubt will overcome stuff in the end you know um and so As we're living through this time in our movies i wanted to just spotlight um there's a whole nother you know history to hollywood and it's in in it's uh in through these films which are are made from many different aspects of american life um so that's why i wanted to choose this one
0: that's an amazing reason and it automatically made me think that robert downey's son robert downey (laughs) jr is perpetuating Mm -hmm. the problem that you are you're Mm -hmm. talking about um That's just funny, that's just funny. No, but I think you're right. I think right now, and has been for quite a few years now, let's be real, that production value and has to be so high because the attention grab has to be there and to maximize audience size, like profit returns and corporate, the corporatization of it all, like has really pushed, I think, out more content than most people can take in. And because of that, because you have so much high production or high cost uh, films that the advertising for those films just it has to be dialed to 11. Right. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Like it has to be. And there's only so much advertising space like granted, we think, oh, there's so many places to advertise. No, there, there really isn't. There's a finite amount of space where us as Americans go that we will actually see ads. And that ad space is bought up by all the major corporations. And so, if you want to make an independent film, where are you going to advertise? How are you going to reach us whenever so much other content is being pushed out already? Um, I think that's a great reason to, you know, going into 2023 now. Let's uh let's make some different choices about what we're consuming as far as films. And, and to that end, 10 films is so small of a list, right? You know, we got 12 months. So so we need maybe one one or two more, maybe three, five, ten. How many? You got some run us up for us, is what you're saying, huh?
1: Oh, I do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's so many movies we could talk about in this list. I mean, uh, one of the things we didn't even talk about was the 90s, where films like Reservoir Dogs and Slacker and Bottle Rocket and a million other films came out of you know there's also uh the early films from like the Cone Brothers, Blood Simple or Who's That Knocking at My Door, which is Martin Scorsese's first film, or She's Gotta Have It, Spike Lee's first film. These are all great indie flights um that everyone should see. These all these are all good movies. But um, if I had to pick one really uh special honorable mention that I want to talk about, it's uh from 2003. it's The Room, uh directed by Tommy Wiseau. And I want to talk about this movie because not all movies are great. Um <laughs> you know, there's two different all films are made, uh, you know, making a movie is very difficult. I want to preface all of this by saying that, because, you know, as a director, not only are you, if you're the writer, not only did you have to write everything, but you have to ring all the actors, you have to give them direction, you have to talk to the camera person, you have to deal with your production designer, the sets, costumes, um, and you, you're dealing with money and time, and can you get everything you need in the time you have, but, you know, every time you turn the camera on, you're spending money, and so. um, when you see a really great film, it's, it's something special because it's something that uh, everything had to align to come out just the way it is. Uh, but that's not always the case. And so an indie film like The Room is a film that is clearly the passion of someone who doesn't have the talent or the skill to make a great movie. Um, it's the film made by, I I would say, an immigrant, because. Um, Tommy Weisso is a, is an enigma. No one really knows where he's from. Um, his past is convoluted. Um, but he seemingly has an, I- an idea of what American movies are. And he makes this film about, that he stars in, he writes it. He's the center figure of this movie. And his girlfriend is cheating on him with his best friend. And seemingly some kind of melodrama. Uh, but it's got a lot of influence from like James Dean films. And just this Americana kind of sewn into it. Yet, it definitely feels artificial. And uh, he's a person who doesn't know how to make movies. And so it's not shot well, it's not acted well, because no one in the film is a real actor. Um, And so it has this reputation of being a bad movie. uh, But there's a great book written about it called The Disaster Artist, uh, written by one of the uh, people who acted in the film. And it tells the story of this guy whose dream it is to make this film. Um yet he's this strange, eccentric immigrant that this guy meets um but his passion is to make this movie, and he did it with his own money. No one knows where the money came from, but he made this movie with his own money, and there's this is disaster of a movie that has become part of our zeitgeist of movies now because the room is celebrated as like a midnight movie as this Rocky horror or the Niloing Dead or whatever you know many of these other films because of its uh you know because of how funny it is and so um it's not often we get to talk about movies that are quote unquote bad um but it does have its merits because now you're watching this very oddball movie that could only have been made by this one person um and you know you're seeing the product of this this person's mind and um yeah so not only like this list is like 10 great works of art, but there are also so many other avenues you could go through um of what independent cinema could be.
0: Well, that would be a list. Ten movies never <laughs> to watch. Um, well, I'm not saying you shouldn't watch this one. You should definitely watch it, right, right, right. No, but it did make me think about that. Yeah, the the 10 never ever movies. Um I have I so when you started describing it, I was like, and I I watched the trailer, I was like, this seems vaguely familiar to me. And then you you bring in the book and then you you give me the title of the book, The Disaster Artist, and they made the film The Disaster Artist, which was yes. And I was like, okay, it all clicks now. And I was like, I know exactly what you're talking about here. Um, So The Disaster Artist, I forget who started, but someone really, really famous. Yeah, Franco, Um,
1: James Franco plays Tommy Wiseau.
0: Exactly. That's
1: um, I think uh, Seth Rogen produced the movie as well.
0: Yeah. So it was like a big production whenever it came out and there was I remember a little bit of a controversy about it because you know people um, acting. What's the word? Um, meta. Whenever they're and they're mm-hmm. meta acting. Is that it? An actor like takes the character and always acts that way.
1: Oh sure, like method
0: acting, even off camera.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Method acting. That's it. Thank you. I was like, don't leave me hanging. Come on now. But <laughs> I had the wrong word. But there was a lot of there was a lot of talk about James Franco and his method acting as Tommy Vice, um, being kind of weird and stirring and ruffling some feathers in Hollywood when this movie was being shot. But it was nice to, I had never seen the trailer or anything of the actual movie, The Room. So it's nice to to have you describe to me and to see the trailer for the, the original, you know? And mm-hmm. from 2003, it's not that that long ago. I mean, 20 years, yes. Yeah. Uh, but you could definitely tell some of the shots and some of the acting. You're like, yeah, this, all right, independent cinema. I was like, this really doesn't look that good. <laughs> Good choices, good choices, my friend. But right now, I'm gonna ask a question to bring up something that we I brought up earlier Mm -hmm. and talk about American independent cinema today. And you know, so I think out of what you just named the the runners up plus all the other movies that are in the list, I think there are maybe two that people may may have heard of. If you're really into movies, I think people, they've heard of Reservoir Dogs and they've heard of Night of the Living Dead. They may never have seen them, but they've heard of them. Mm-hmm. However, I think a lot of people who are just regular common movie goers, they might not have heard of them. Um, and that makes me think, you know, are there any American independent cinema films that aren't on your list that you think have really risen to the title of like mainstream, like that could compete with any, big tentpole hollywood movie as far as just as well known um, can you think of any um
1: well i mean in today's in today's markets um uh, i can't really think of many um but if but, we go back a few years um paranormal activity was one of those that I would say definitely oh, yeah uh, that one's fits huge that bill. yeah like that no movie kidding. was that movie did the whole, So that movie was made for like $15,000, um, but then it got bought by a studio and they pumped a bunch of money into reshooting the ending. However, majority of the movie still is intact form what it was, and that movie grossed $190 million worldwide in its theatrical release. And so um, it is possible, and I think films, you know, uh, not quite indie, but like Pulp Fiction or Memento, kind of films like that all uh, managed to reach the top um uh, during their time period um to compete with the big hollywood movies yeah um, and i mean just like yeah. as
0: far as being known it doesn't have mm-hmm. to be like made yes. as much money just right, right. like known yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah uh but today you know the disney and uh, the superhero films um really have a stranglehold on cinema or you know cinema spaces um and so it's even harder out there but i don't think it's impossible because if you look at something like paranormal activity um i and like going back to the conversation about night living dead like a horror movie can do that um granted it was bought by a studio and then they made like four or five other paranormal activities but um that's that's a i think that's a great example of a movie that was made
0: independently that became something you know something so big sure and that also made me think of like blair witch project mm-hmm. exactly yeah um for sure horror budgets are or you get off on the cheap but you can get a mm-hmm. high a high value for a return yeah. and mm-hmm. and because of that it can become really well known yeah um, but it's kind of like a follow up to that so american independent cinema the majority of your lists and even your runners up it's going to sound so funny but it's true it's from the last millennium oh yeah like, you know, it is pre 2000 now, granted, 23 years isn't an extremely long amount of time in this new millennium that we're in. But a couple of questions, I think, mixed up into this one is, do you think American independent cinema still thrives like it used to? Like, it seems like the movies you gave us was kind of like the heyday of American independent cinema. And, and what I really want to know is because as a, a casual consumer of films, I don't know any American independent cinema films today. You know, I just, I don't know any, but then again, I'm not plugged in. So does American independent cinema still exist today? And if it does, what does it look like? Does it look anything like the list of movies that you talked about, or is it something completely different?
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, it does exist. It it absolutely does. Uh, But it's in a different, um, different form. I think something we touched upon was the uh the fury behind some of the films on this list or the creativity or the willingness to push buttons um i don't know if that's necessarily there i think what a lot of independent cinema is focused on now is trying to tell the best story you can or examine the best character you can Um, and not necessarily uh going all out to push the boundaries on what uh what the audience can take um but yeah, I think a lot of these films that you get made, um, most of them obviously are digital now because it's the easiest way to make a movie, but we have a lot of great indie filmmakers working in America, but, um, you know, maybe the reason we don't see a lot of them pushed to the forefront, I mean, of, uh, of our, of our advertising or our consciousness or whatever is because they're going to the streaming. That's the best place for an indie film to go. You can get bought by a streaming service. I mean, um, I don't subscribe to Netflix. If you go and you look at how many films they have. Those you know, There's a ton of films in there they are independently financed. They're not all studio productions. But during the award season is, you know, when you start to see a lot of the, excuse me, a lot of smaller movies that get attention. And so those are films that uh, you will see independently financed movies there. But yeah, I mean, I think it ebbs and flows, but uh, it's definitely marginalized compared to um, how it used to be, because we used to have the drive-ins and the grindhouses and, the, and um, the B-movie slots where, you know, you would pay to get in to see the big studio movie. And then you would see right after that is the B-movie, which is, you know, some kind of uh, smaller budgeted genre movie. And so now that all, a lot of these things have gone away, uh, most of these films are relegated to streaming services.
0: Yeah, I suppose if I think about looking at streaming services content, there is a whole bunch of random stuff that I have no idea what it is. <laughs> And I suppose it's not really random at all. I suppose what it is, is it's these companies paying independent filmmakers to make content so that these different streaming platforms have more content to compete against other streaming services. Like, if you think about it, actually, that makes a whole lot of sense to me because I do see, and a ton of it, you can tell, is not high production value. The CGI is not like, Disney quality or, or anything mm-hmm. like that, or Warner Brothers quality, or like, you know, you get a Dungeons and Dragons movie that isn't like real dragons, and you're like, wow, this was made in 2021, but that dragon looks like it was made in 1999. Yeah. No you know, real dragons. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so so like, there's a ton of movies mm-hmm. like that, now that I think about it, that are on all the streaming platforms that are new releases but you just you don't see any advertisement for them and they're just kind of there their content to help beef Mm -hmm. up the library of the platform and and maybe that makes me think maybe american independent cinema is thriving more now than ever maybe it's easier to get a film financed by a company if it's streaming it is that you know um because they are looking to increase their their online libraries. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, do you have any kind of take on that? Like as a as a director or producer, like trying to get your movie put uh, or sell your movie to a company like streaming? Is it easier right now because of it? Like streaming wars, I think is what I've heard it called.
1: Uh, you know, I don't know, but I would say that I would equate the the, the streaming wars, the streaming platforms to, to uh, the American studio system, because the more and more power the streaming services get they're gonna they're becoming if they're not already uh the new studios um and so if they're financing a movie then they're def- it's definitely not an independent movie anymore because you have these um oh that's a good million point. dollar movies that they're they are producing they're producing a lot of content uh but they're you know they are giving um you know shilling out millions of dollars to make this content uh but there are a lot of films that get independently made that get bought by them uh, and put on their services, and so, um, to, like you said, to fill up their, um, you know, their the need for how much their library content library. Yeah, I don't know if it's any easier um, than it used to be, but I do know that uh, definitely is not really, uh, you know, it's not really allowing once it's bought and put on there. It's not, you know, like you said, there's no advertising for it. Advertising is a huge part of any product, right? Um, and so, sure, sure. if it's just dumped on there, no one's gonna know about it unless you have some kind of buzz
0: about it. So yeah, I don't know. Oh, that's a good point. You made me think that there's a difference between like an independent filmmaker being paid by a studio company to come Mm -hmm. in and make a film versus an independent film. Right. Um, And I didn't think about that before, but yeah, that's a really good distinction. I like that, I like that. All right, now last question for you, the one we always come back to, and I always feel like I'm so repetitive with this question every time, but (laughs) I like this question. I think it's important. So it's why is this list important to you and why should other people think that this list is important as well take it away
1: uh i mean this is our culture man i mean american cinema um has for 100 years or more for better or worse put out its image of america um because we had the haze code and so you, for a long time so you couldn't say or do certain things so it kind of cut out large chunks of of our society and be in our human behaviors and so uh, th- these kind of films, I think, are, are more important, even though there are a lot of great uh, technical aspects and, it, you know, things that um, progressed in, in the studio system. Uh, but these are the films that really represent our society. And, they're, you know, there's, like I said, there's, you know, probably a thousand more um, that could go on this list that you know, also do the same thing. But these are the films that I feel like. Best represents uh, the art of cinema from our country. There are so many great uh, filmmakers from around the world who didn't have to didn't have to suffer through the Hollywood studio system. You know, you get your Ingmar Bergmans and your Kurosawa's and your Fellinis and all those kinds of guys. Chantal Ackerman, so many, so many other directors um, who didn't have to do this. Who in their country they're allowed to be art, uh artists without having to be independently financed. You know, there was, um, and so in our in our country. Having these films exist outside that studio system means so much uh, to me as a film goer, um, but also, you know, I feel like I, I could see many aspects of our of our society reflected on the screen because of them. And they've also, you know, gone on to to um, influence so many other filmmakers to tell their stories from their from from wherever they are. So, um, yeah, that's why I think this this is
0: important. Excellent stuff, right there. Superb, my friend. Superb. But Gregory, Day, before you take off, why don't you? Uh, why don't you tell us what you've been working on? What you got going over on uh, Hipsville AD for the new year? Something special? Uh, yeah. You know,
1: I'm I'm working on something. I can't really talk about it, but I'll say I've uh, Ooh, been watching. Oh, hush, hush. Huh? <laughs> yeah, I've been uh, it's formulating, but I've been watching a lot of westerns from the 50s and 60s. Um, it's kind of, I guess, kind of goes hand in hand with talking about American studio film and it's you know it's reflection of um you know propagating the society that you know that it uh, put forth for so long and how the western kind of reacts uh, you know how the western kind of plays into that but um I do want to throw out uh, a mention for my last uh, put I just put out a list uh, about John Cassavetes who was director of the film Shadows here uh, talking about he's such a he's you know Shadows is just the beginning of his career but uh, he directed so many other great films and so many more famous films he uh, and he ended up apparently financed most of them uh, but, uh, it, but so he's well known for that so what I wanted to do was talk about the films he acted in um, in the studio um, system and so watching those films kind of just focusing in on him in that movie and and trying to get to the heart of like, is he interested in this movie at all because he's so bored and so at odds with the studio system so I uh, mind that for a little bit and made that list so highly uh, recommend you check it out.
0: Most definitely check them out and where can the good people find you at Gregory day.
1: Yeah, you head over to Substack, it's bad dot Substack, uh, or bad day sub bad day, um, that Substack. Excuse me, to uh, check that out, and then you can find me on Instagram at Hipsville AD, my handle there. So yeah, check it out.
0: Excellent. Lad. Thank you so much for coming on, and that is Hipsville AD's top ten list. Check out our friend Gregory Day online. Follow him everywhere, people. Always remember that Lo-Fi Poly is more than just me; it's the we. That we be. Talk to you soon, LoFi listeners. Pickering and Day signing off. Peace out.